since then. So, uh, the best podcast in South Africa? I couldn't think of anything cleverer to say than that. What would happen if you took words and planted them in an ancient mangrove and turned them into <laughs> amarula fruit and then harvested go. them and then distilled right. them and then put them back out as words? You know how there's that sort of theory that different types of music will like uh, affect the growth of plants and animals in different ways? If you mm. just played this podcast to Amarula Fruit and then drank the the, the produce, yeah. it would it would it would be exactly the feeling of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It would also. I mean, if you drink Amarula and listen to this podcast, then the enlightenment will take over the world again. Brilliant, brilliant. So uh, enough waffling. I am half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer. And of course, joined as always by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. And uh, we've got a bit of a mixed bag of things today, um, starting off with a story from the Far East, which, you know, I think it's very revealing about the attitude of the Chinese state just generally to the to the planet, to the world, to the universe. Uh, Gabriel, you came across as you linked it to me. You, why don't you have the honor of? Of describing it to the listeners before we talk about it. <laughs> okay, so Japan is has filed an official complaint through its embassy in Beijing against Beijing's government for subjecting Japanese citizens that are in China to anal swab testing for coronavirus. Now, Oof. as Reuters describes it, an anal swab test is when you insert a swab, which is like a Q-tip, three to five centimeters up someone's bum and then rotate it gently. Uh, often you have to do this twice. And China has been sort of oh, uh, <laughs> doing this and uh, and sometimes in clinical studies sort of comparing what happens when you, when you anal swab test someone versus when you test them in the nose or throat, preferably with different Q-tips uh, <laughs> to see and in the right order to see to see uh, which test is more accurate and effective and so on. Um, the background science is, by the way, that some of the most interesting developments that we talked about in April last year yeah, yeah. were in testing sewerage because that seemed to be a way that you could get around uh, all of the uh, difficulties in getting a genuine uh, prevalence mm. sample. Uh, mm -hmm. If you just see, and, and and what's important to understand is that the virus is made up of various proteins. Right. And so when it breaks down, those proteins still exist. So you can pick up trace proteins of the virus, even though so, it's not so contagious look, or viable. So, yeah. so they did, I remember this, they did a whole bunch of studies in cities across the world, and they looked at the sewage and they said, uh, there's going to be a big increase in hospitalizations in like a week or two, because we've just seen a big spike in the uh, you know, COVID content in the sewage. And yeah. lo and behold, it seems to pretty much be the case every time. Yeah, it worked pretty well. There were also some disturbing things like in Spain, they found uh, traces from... So, so by the way, in a lot of countries, they take sewage samples and then just sort of keep them in cold storage for a while. So they could go backwards in time from before the outbreak and see when and compare things, coronavirus yeah. proteins. And they were finding coronavirus proteins... I think the earliest was in April 2019 in mm. Spain. Uh, and, and there it's not clear if it was a genuine coronavirus, if it was SARS-CoV-2 or if it was something yeah. similar that had an overlapping protein. Definitely yeah. they found high, higher traces towards the end of the year in ways that suggested that the outbreak had sort of predated 
the news of it to some extent. I, mean, yeah, very so I, low think, I think that's definitely clear, but it's just not really clear whether there was anything in April. Of yes, no, 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 the April one is, uh, it's very, I actually reached out to those it's, academics and got no response. Yeah. I think they were a bit embarrassed about their results. Yeah, it's possible that they, it's always possible you could, they could have made a mistake or something. So it's interesting to think about um, mm. that at the very least, there may have been something vaguely similar floating about in people's immune systems <laughs> um, uh, yeah. prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, but now. But anyway, the, the point is that, that the, the, this was important uh, both from a sociological point of view and from a, um, a contact tracing point of view. Uh, mm. Especially if you think about how many, uh, you know, people are changing diapers and nurses that are dealing with small infants and stuff. Uh, right. This is kind of funny because my oldest friend just had a baby today. But, you know, it is uh, babies are messy little bundles of joy. And so there was a worry <laughs> that if, if, if uh, you know, if a one-year-old that's still using a nappy has the virus, the, their fecal matter might be um, a way of spreading the disease. And then you'd yeah. want to know that. You'd want to communicate that yeah. to the public. So there are tests being done on that, and they found that like once it's once it's that far down the track, so to speak, it's, <laughs> it's way too late. Contagious, yeah. It's way too late for it to be contagious. So um, in this regard, the Chinese argument is just that asymptomatics uh, might have it. You it might long last longer. You might pick up after someone's no longer contagious. You can still pick up uh, trace proteins in trace, their yeah. in their mucus. But even after that, you might be able to pick up in the anal swabs. But so from a from a contact tracing point of view, it's useless because you're just more likely to get effectively false positives. Right. Uh, but they so just, you know, on the best available data. evidence, it's the worst kind of test to apply to <laughs> teachers and tourists coming in. But uh, Beijing has been applying it and they did it to some U.S. diplomats. And there was a great fracas because the U.S. State Department last week, it was reported in the Washington Post and the State Department confirmed it that their diplomats in Beijing had been subjected to anal swab tests. And uh, the U.S. complained about this. They said this is uh, 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 degrading their humanity or something like that. And then the Chinese response was, no, we've never done that. And then it was, no, to the best of our knowledge, we've never done that. And then it was, no, we've never done that. But at the same time, uh, we won't do it again. To diplomats because they should they should be subject to a different set of rules and then the japanese were like okay whatever that's your fight you are doing it to our citizens and we really would like you to exclude them from this mm. and china has not given a response and so the japan times carried the story yesterday saying we're very we angry know, about this and we're leveling up our petition do we do we know uh, uh how much china is doing it to its own citizens um and uh, the reason i bring this up is because Chinese television, media, propaganda, everything is fused with anti-Japanese stuff, right? So uh, there's still a very deep um, dislike for the Japanese in, in mainland China left over from the Second World War. We talked about, of course, the brutal Japanese invasion and occupation in the, in the 30s and 40s. Um, but the Chinese government very much keeps that alive. And so you can probably find clips of it on YouTube. But for example, there are uh, uh, clips from Chinese action movies where a Chinese hero is fighting the Japanese and defeating 50 Japanese soldiers by himself and that kind of thing. Um, 
which makes one wonder why it took them so long to win the war if that was the case. <laughs> but uh, this is this is like it's it's very constant that there's a lot of anti-Japanese stuff there, and China often positions itself as being defensive against Japan, as con- you know, ca- containing Japanese aggression. And so the idea that they might, shall we say, be a little bit more eager to do this kind of test on Japanese citizens as opposed to Chinese citizens would not surprise me. So so do we know if they're doing it to the Chinese? So so we, uh, we we I know from one report uh, from Japan mm-hmm. Times that over a thousand Chinese teachers have been mm-hmm. subjected to this test. Um, oh, wow. There is there is uh, <laughs> an intimation that um, the the way that things have been progressing because this started at the beginning of the year. The way that things have been progressing is that it seems to have been more foreigners that are taking it uh, literally up the bum. I'm sorry. There's I don't know how to. <laughs> talk about this <laughs> in a delicate without sounding mind. silly yes <laughs> um but but i do think that's part of the yeah i mean my reading is that uh japan and china relate to each other a little bit in pop culture as england and france does so right. uh, accepting that the the salient difference is that the england was very happy to join the uk was very happy to be part of uh, the EU for a while and uh, very eager to be part of NATO together, you know, uh, geostrategically, um, they are in alliance, whereas Beijing and Tokyo are geostrategically somewhat at loggerheads. And, and yeah. Yeah. And they haven't, you know, uh, France and Britain haven't had a serious fight for like 200 years, um, whereas China and Japan, it's not only... Um, more recent but it's kept alive by the the chinese sort of official line on 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 that war um and there's this and there are other problems i mean the uh, uh, early in the coronavirus japan was very critical of china's um refusal to allow proper investigation into the circumstances under which uh sars-cov-2 emerged um they spoke out in favor of dr ai fen who by the way is just as an aside we're coming around to the anniversary of Dr. I Fen. His death. Uh, no, no, no. So, so I Fen is not the discovery. one who died. No, oh. I Fen is a lady. Uh, she oh, yes, the, yes. I remember. She her. was the whistle giver. She yeah. basically was part of the team that isolated uh, the, the virus and sort of spread the word that this is a problem. Yes, yes. And Dr. I think it was Dr. Lee was the one who contracted it and died. Yes, you're correct. You're correct. Uh, but Dr. I Fen was chastised for um, raising the alarm. And then it was in early March 2020 that she gave a series of interviews, one in particular um, to The Guardian, I think it was, where she drew attention to the fact that she had been criticized for spreading the word, saying, mm. I'm the whistlegiver, he, Lee was the whistleblower, it's all very tragic that he's died, and I'm very sorry that I didn't, you know, that when I was reprimanded, I just, I just took the rap on the knuckles and stayed quiet. I really should have pushed harder, and I'm sorry about that. She subsequently went missing. And then re-emerged under semi-mysterious circumstances, um, and then went for an operation on her eyes. She was starting to lose her vision, and something went wrong with the procedure. And she blames the hospitals. And there's this very weird thing where the hospital she was at had three ophthalmologists who all died. So she had to get some other doctor to do the procedure, and it didn't go right. So she's now nearly blind and weak and incapable it's- of holding her children. It's, so there's it's this, not 
it's not unusual for people to go sort of missing for periods of time like this in China. I know that um, it happens time to time. Uh, there was a Chinese billionaire who recently criticized the state, um, and I think he was nasty about Xi Jinping in particular. And he suddenly disappeared from public view for a while. And I, I'm not sure if he reemerged, but uh, it's not it's not unusual for this kind of thing to happen. No, but I China's do think that a there's brutal place. There's there's something about you know uh, people. I, I think it's a very bad idea to to resign uh, important truths to those members of the ultra left who who just use them in in toxic ways all the time. But the thought mm -hmm. of the body as being a location where politics expresses itself, right. uh, that's a powerful and old idea. And uh, you know those who who fought against slavery. Uh, in the UK, for example, in the early 1800s, the the sort of the, the the back of a black man that's been that bears the marks of lashes. This was an important uh, yeah, manifestation a image. of a political system that they didn't like, mm. and also people being in chains on their knees. This was a thing to push against. That kind of politics is important, and and the politics of a country where, on the one hand, you sort of have doctors uh, only probing. Uh, foreigners and teachers right. and on the other hand where the, the very best doctors are going blind um, I think uh, it's just a it's just a disturbing kind of coincidence uh, yeah, I think in, in this moment I in our history that speaks to a broader worry that I have that you that of this sort of super powerful state yeah. that's at once very probing and uh, very blind to to human rights right and um yeah, i think i think yeah, all these it, scandals do give a good sort of texture of what the chinese state is is like it's mm -hmm. sort of it's very almost machine-like uh in a way um and uh you know that sort of that idea of ruthlessness i think i think they really do uh you know that kind of ruthless efficiency that uh, authoritarian regimes are often f uh, allegedly have but don't actually have in reality because they're completely dysfunctional the Chinese state, unfortunately, does seem to have some ruthless efficiency. Does some of that, and for all, I mean, yeah, I mean, bolting, welding people into their apartments in, in Wuhan was such a case. Of right, right, That's exactly. It. I'd, I'd love to go to Shanghai and 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 see what's going on. But the the bigger geo, uh, you know, when we say that Japan and Be Tokyo and Beijing are at loggerheads, that obviously the really big issue over the last couple of years has been Hong Kong and its independence. Yes. Uh, Japan was uh, one of the first and strongest critics of uh, China's. Uh, recalibration of the rules to undermine Hong Kong sovereignty, and, and, and in fact, the, the Japanese are playing uh, big games here. They they have specifically decided that the next couple of years their economic focus is going to be attracting investment from China. Mm. Um, so they've begun a campaign around the world to sort of convince people to disinvest from China and instead move to Japan, because their economy is. You know, it has its problems, but they're kind of arguing, you know, you can't trust China. China abuses human rights. China does all these evil things. You might as well come and invest here. It's also in the Far East. Everyone works hard. We might not have the same youthful, although fast aging, workforce as the Chinese. Uh, we may have more laws and stuff, but we're more stable. Mm -hmm. And it's important as a, as a part of that sort of broader, you know, when we talk about China, we uh, almost always end up reflecting on the fact that... Uh, Almost none of its neighbors are are closely aligned with Beijing. They're, they're more cowed by it. With the exception of the military junta in uh, Myanmar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's the one. I, but, I, but I think, uh, yeah, I think Japan's, 
sort of uh, under Abe, who who has uh, a kind of nationalist streak to him that I think makes people worry when, especially when they think of uh, the kind of Japanese yep, nationalism yep. that we talked about so much in that episode. It, it, uh, but he does seem to be trying to put up a tent pole that right. smaller uh, countries around China's orbit can sort of gather under um, as American power uh, potentially retreats from the region. Uh, Japan, I think, looks to play a more a more sort of uh, active guardian Reassertive role. role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's got a lot of allies in the region, of course, too, because um, you know South Korea, even though they really don't like Japan, um, also from that period in the the thirties, forties, when they were, I mean, even before then, because Korea was occupied by Japan for a long time. Um, but uh, you know, I think South Korea does recognize, of course, the threat of North Korea and China. Um, and then you've also got other countries like Vietnam and the Philippines, which are, uh, especially Vietnam, quite concerned about the rise of Chinese nationalism. Um, because, you know, if you look at Vietnam's history in particular, every time China's had a strong centralized state, they've invaded Vietnam. Um, <laughs> this yeah, is and when you say every on. time, it's like that's a pattern that goes on for well, like hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, yeah, for um, longer in- than France has been a country. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, um, there's a great Vietnamese uh, hero called Li Loi, who I think I wrote about in one of my um, This Week in History pieces. But he he uh, is famous for actually driving the Chinese out of Vietnam in the 1400s. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is their founding national myth. Yeah. <laughs> Back when the Sistine Chapel was still a glimmer in someone's eye, the Vietnamese right, right. Chinese were already uh, beefing. Going at each other. And, and while we're on this region and, and, and punting work, I just want to say Indonesia uh, has uh, w- where where Nicholas has been and and, and a country that Three his times. father has uh, strong connections with. Uh, Indonesia has done something of global significance. Um, uh, thousands of companies uh, gathered up t- together to try and push for um, independent purchasing of vaccines for distribution to their staff and their families, and. Uh, this is important in part because Indonesia is the fourth most large, most populous country in the world, and in part because right. it's got a similar problem to South Africa, where it's so big that there are, you know, this is the problem we call inequality. It's so big that it's got a hell of a lot of poor people, but it's actually also got uh, quite a lot right. of it, uh, successful un- businesses. Unlike here, its economy has been growing a lot faster. But yeah, carry on. <laughs> So, so, so the, the the government can't really afford to vaccinate everyone. Doesn't really have the capacity to vaccinate everyone. Uh, but there are companies that could accelerate the process by stepping in. They lobbied. The government said no. They lobbied some more. The government said no. And then finally, the government said yes. And purchase deals were struck uh, last week. And so, uh, millions and millions of vaccine jabs are, are now being purchased by uh, private entities and to be distributed in Indonesia. And this this matters. This is not the only example of anything like that. Um, in Bangladesh, uh, a private company uh, really wanted to buy uh, tens of millions of vaccines. Government couldn't afford it. The, co- the company said, look, here's what we'll do. We'll pay for half the vaccines and then the government mm. can have them and then we'll help redistribute them. So if nominally it's going through the government, but really the private entity is doing a lot. That's another version. Mexico yeah. has had private lobbying. They forced the government, the president of Mexico, to say, "Okay, I accept. Private companies can buy this, although it doesn't look like it's actually gone through yet." In Brazil, Bolsonaro was very anti-vax, so the governor of Sao Paulo said, uh, uh, "Sort of struck a deal where 
a local vaccine producer in Sao Paulo would produce right. the vaccines, give them to Sao Paulo uh, government, uh, provincial government, state government, and then um, Sao Paulo's provincial government would give some to the federal government to 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 redistribute around, around that. And that all matters from a South African perspective because Adrian Gore, the head of Discovery, uh, has said that no vaccine producer will sell to anyone excepting for a national government. So that's already <laughs> not been true since all over uh, the world. January yeah. in Brazil. Uh, Indonesia's gone all the way with private companies buying it. SII, the Serum Institute of India, has agreed to sell uh, their vaccines to private companies in India for five times the price they sell to governments. But all around the world, there are private companies. Also in South Africa, Lamar International, a Cape-based pharmaceutical, uh, uh, said that Sputnik uh, far V uh, would... Uh, Which is uh, the Russian would, vaccine. Yeah, produced by, what is it called? Uh, Gallica or something. Gaz, anyway, that com- Gaz something young. That company said that they would sell them to Lamar um, and ship them on the next available flight as soon as SAPA approves it. Um, so, so Gore's just talking nonsense. Um, mm. And it really and matters because South Africa, I wrote a piece about this in News 24. You should feel free to go check it out. You'll, you'll sort of see the numbers. Uh, it, it, it is behind the, the, the paywall, though. So uh, maybe it'll come out somewhere else uh, the next couple of days. But uh, for now, you'll need a subscription to watch it. Uh, sorry, I, I know I know I'm backtracking here a bit, but I do just want to talk about Indonesia a bit because it is kind of a it's a country that gets ignored a lot, but it's really interesting. Yeah. So it's I think it's either second or most populous Muslim country in the world. Um, and, and so actually a huge body of the Islamic world is, is, is all the way in Indonesia. And it sort of doesn't fall into the focus when people talk about the Islamic world often. Um, mm. So that's an interesting thing about it. But uh, what I was saying about uh, uh, GDP growth, I just went and double checked it. And 2018, 5%, 5.2% growth, 2019, 5% growth. 2020, the year of the coronavirus pandemic, Indonesia is like the third country to get hit there. Virus response isn't great. 2% contraction, as opposed to our 7%. And the forecast for this year is 6.1% growth. <laughs> so, yeah, so compared to South Africa, uh, real yeah, time contraction in both 2018-2019, uh, nominal growth of 03 and 0.2% respectively. Right. <sighs> and and also um, their unemployment in 2020, the year of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns, soared to a sky high. Would you like to guess? No. Eight percent. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish. Can you imagine South Africa at eight percent unemployment? It would and, be and so you know, much better. You know what else is interesting about that? So so South Africa stands out as having the highest um, uh, minimum wage relative to the median wage uh, that yeah. I could find. But Indonesia is, is the closest. It's the only country uh, that's where the minimum wage and the median wage are basically the same, meaning that sort of on the face of it, half of all businesses and employees are illegal because they, they're uh, yeah. working on the basis of contracts that uh, don't line up with national legislation. But Indonesia had this, instituted this minimum wage many years ago, and they came up with a simple solution. So the problem is, once you've put a minimum wage in and it's too high, right. uh, it's so high that it's going to drive up unemployment, uh, you need to bring it down. But that's going to be politically unpopular because it's going to be like, how can you say that people should be living on you know, less than a dollar an hour or whatever for work? 
whatever it is. So their solution was just not to enforce it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, to give you an idea also of, of how much of an achievement it is to get this many people employed, and, and also their, I think their population below the poverty line as a percentage is lower than ours. Um, uh, I'm not 100% sure about that, but it, uh, I think so. Um, the island of Java, which is the most important island in Indonesia, right? It's smaller than the Eastern Cape, and it has 150 million people living on it. Jeez, like. <laughs> it is, and it's also covered in volcanoes as well. <laughs> so <laughs> if they can do it, it's really hot all the time. Like it's, you know, yeah. a cold day for Swamp Indonesians. Hot. When 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 the temperature goes below thirty degrees, the Indonesians put on jerseys. <laughs> like that's that's their that's for them. It's too cold. <laughs> if they can do it, we really really can do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they are also a much more dysfunctional kind. I mean, they have like separatist movements all over the place and radical Islamist terrorists and religious conflicts and 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 it goes on and on and on. It's just. The, the fact that they can get 5% economic growth, you know, for years and years, when they've got war zones in multiple parts of the country. Country, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a bank um, that's nowhere near like ours, anyway. Right, 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 exactly. So, I want to go now to, uh, considering we we're on the East, we're talking about these dysfunctional countries. And I, I was having a thought the other day, or... Uh, yesterday in the shower where I have all of my good ideas mm. um, and this is about how do you judge a leader from a severely messed up country so the example that first comes to mind I'm sure some of our listeners are probably familiar with Mohammed bin Salman he's the prince regent so he's the heir to the throne and the real power in Saudi Arabia which is of course you know huge oil producer very rich important dude um He's a little bit unusual because he wasn't necessarily the next to be in line, but he was very ambitious. He's quite a young guy. I think he's like 32 or something, something like that. I think he's a bit older, late 30s. Yeah, yeah his, his, his father, I think, is the current king, although his father is apparently like either senile or just very old and not able to kind of go with it, and that's why he's the real ruler. Uh, but he suddenly got placed into the line of succession through his own political maneuvering. And the Saudi royal family, it's a very cutthroat place. You know, all the different branches of the family always fighting over who's going to be the heir. He then appears to have arrested all of his relatives. And, you know, because the Saudi royal family is so big, that was a lot of people um, who weren't part of his faction, basically. And mm. he put them under house arrest in, in a luxury hotel, where I think they still are. Uh, some of them tried to flee the country, and uh, the air for the armed forces under his command shot them down, and they died. So he's a pretty ruthless guy. Um, he also famously uh, dismembered the Washington Post columnist and opinion writer J Jamal Khashoggi, who was a, a, a reporter from Saudi Arabia, um, and I think I think he was of an Islamist bent. Um, yeah, but well, he was based somewhere else, but he was visiting Saudi Arabia. Yeah, he, he, or he was visiting Turkey at the time to get a visa from the Saudi Arabian embassy to sort out his marriage or something like that. Anyway, uh, he got, you know, brutally murdered, dismembered. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, you know, obviously he's not elected. He's an absolute monarch. In fact, he's far more of a dictator than, than previous kings of Saudi Arabia because he rules without the rest of the family's consent, uh, which is a traditional way of doing it. He's 
far more authoritarian, a brutal guy, a murderous guy, a thug. But he's made some moves to liberate women in Saudi Arabia. Um, he, uh, it was under him that women were allowed to drive. Uh, he made moves to uh, open up the economy and diversify it. He's made moves to uh, build alliances against Iran and make tie- fix ties with Israel and do all sorts of things that I think we would probably argue are pretty good things. Yeah. So the question is, how should we judge him? And and you can think of other leaders like this, the leader of Ethiopia, right, who who, who instituted this this crackdown on the Tigrayan people, which was pretty brutal. Um, but he's yeah. also private. Yeah, but he's also privatized the economy and made peace with Eritrea. Um, and you can come up with numerous other examples of this. Should we judge them? Well, Paul Kagame, another good one, right? He murders political opponents all the time in horrific ways, usually in Santa hotels. <laughs> and yet um, he's, he's, he's uh, improved Rwanda's economy a lot and stopped the civil war there. So, so, so here's my question, right? This is a sort of genuine moral problem. How do we judge these leaders from these countries? Do we look at them and say, this person is cruel, this person is evil, they're brutal, they didn't have to become the leader of this country, but they chose to be, they they, they chose to invest themselves in this evil, corrupt system that their country is part of, and therefore they're a morally reprehensible person. Even if they do some good things, it doesn't make up for the evil they do. Or should we judge them very contextually and say, look, these people, these leaders are trying to do the best in severely messed up countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia has, as far as I'm concerned, a pretty broken sort of esteem economy and moral compass uh, yeah. baseline. Like it's it's just a nasty place generally for uh, politics and, and freedom. And if you consider that context, should we then say, OK, compared to how bad they could be, they're not so bad. What's your thoughts on this? You're a philosophically minded chap. Okay, so I think it's a difficult question. I think it is really difficult. I think two thinking tools that are helpful uh, are as follows. The first is the notion of group agency. So there are, you know, I believe that a kind of collective responsibility is appropriate when a kind of collective action is what's being discharged. Uh, right. when, you know, when one country goes to war with another country, it really is fair to say that the country's gone to war with another country. Uh, criminal justice system, the rule of law, they all depend on collaborative action, both in reporting crimes and uh, helping the police and paying your taxes and so on. We, we kind of, uh, if you don't believe in any collective action, nice philosopher's example is, uh, do you think it's possible for, for a group of people to surround a building? Uh Conceptually, no one person can surround a building. It can only be done <laughs> yeah. by a group. Um, so it does seem like there are collective actions, and where there are collective actions, there should be collective responses. Now, the tricky thing about uh, group agency is that uh, it, it does it does incline one to to make the kinds of claims that you've made, which which might actually be contra- contradicted by fact. The the key concept to try and track is control. So mm. did Vladimir Putin poison Alexei Navalny? Did Mohammed bin Salman uh, slaughter uh, Khashoggi? Is Khashoggi, yeah. Paul Kagame the guy who who killed the, the Rwandese dissident yeah. in in uh, in Santon? And the question there really is: Were they in control? Mm. It's not necessarily whether they ordered it, but in a sense, were they in control? And what's complicated about that? 
in a dictatorship or something approaching a dictatorship, because of course uh, Rwanda is not one, uh, and neither is Ethiopia is, you can be in control of something if you, as it were, allow it to happen, if it suits your interests and you allow it to happen. And, and, the, and the classic sort of English example is some king who said, you know, the, 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 that archbishop is really getting on my nerves. It'd be yeah. wonderful if he disappeared. Uh, what is his name? Archbishop in the 1200s. Uh, I can't remember his name. Will, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest, he said aloud while some of his knights were in the room. And they then went and stabbed the priest to death on the steps of the altar. <laughs> yes. And then no one gets punished. So if you kind oh. of signal that you really want this to happen and then it happens and you don't punish anyone and you do have the ability to punish, um, then I think it's fair to say you were in control. Um, so, but there's two kinds of questions. The one question is, did they order it? And it's not clear to me that uh, Khashoggi's uh, murder was ordered by uh, MBS. Um, mm. It's not clear to me at all that uh, Navalny's poisoning was ordered by Putin or that the assassination in Santon was ordered by Paul Kagame. Um, Let, is, let's say it's for, the, also, for the... It's also not sorry, clear to me point. that they were... Uh, it's also not clear to me that those respective leaders were or are in a position to to genuinely punish uh, the guilty parties. So there's a so so that's part of what's slippery about it is that it, is that with more facts I'd know really better how to make a judgment. In the absence of those facts, it's very tempting to, if one is sympathetic, say, look, it's a terrible country. There are people out there who are trying to get ahead, and they think this is a way to get ahead. And, it's very hard to punish them because they're so surrounded by corrupt law enforcement systems that finding a, ju a judicial system, you know, finding a judge and a prosecuting authority and a police who are going to work together to put forward a fair and credible trial that's going to convict is is it's it's unlikely to happen. And if it does or it doesn't doesn't turn on what the leaders want, it turns on problems that are outside of their control. That's the sympathetic line, and the and the antagonistic line is, look. All roads in Russia lead to Putin. All roads in uh, he, Ethiopia he lead to Bill Addis. Yeah, yeah. And he's so that's part of as a leader. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but let's 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 assume, for the sake of this this particular discussion, that these reprehensible actions were indeed very deliberate, uh, uh, either encouraged by or directly ordered by the leaders in charge. So I think that's. I, I see the CIA, I think it is, has just come out with a report on, on Khashoggi's killing. And they basically said, look, the, the, the guy who actually carried out, gave the order to do the killing, um, has said previously that uh, he would never make any, uh, it, take any action without uh, Mohammed bin Salman's um, express permission. Uh, and also, Mohammed bin Salman wouldn't need to give him like a sort of public statement or anything he could have just yeah. literally picked up the phone to him or just said something in a private conversation take out this guy he's causing a problem so let's assume that he did it, that they did do these terrible things good how okay, so then do, the we, second, do we tackle this problem the second conceptual tool so so the first is just trying to think carefully about control the second conceptual tool um sorry just to clarify the first is trying to link up control with responsibility but then the second one is trying to link up responsibility with a with a broader moral framework. And here the challenge is, and it's a very uh, it's a very serious challenge for for classical liberals, I suppose for anyone, is is thinking about how the rules of the game really ought to change when the circumstances change. And there's a paradigm exemplar, which is the just war. 
in just in case you're in a just war, I think most people agree you have to operate according to a different moral standard. And the obvious thing is that outside of a just war, you just can't go killing people that are strangers and that are unarmed. And some people try to use that standard and say, well, in war, what really justifies soldiers shooting at each other is self-defense. It's like, if I don't kill you, you'll kill me. But that's nonsense. Uh, if you read Catch-22, the great American satire on World War II by Joseph Heller, uh, Yossari and the main character sort of keeps making this argument, guys, you don't have to go kill them in self-defense. You can just run away. That is... You've got a much better chance of surviving, especially because they were in the Air Force and there was very high attrition rates of American Air Force in Europe. You just have a much yeah, better they, chance. They didn't of, win and, World War II by just sitting back and waiting for the Germans to exhaust themselves in their defensive positions. Yeah. And they, I mean, and it's the, the, that book starts out with him in a hospital uh, saying, you know, I think I'm too mentally screwed up to fly. And the doctors say, well, if you're mentally uh, screwed up, then you can't fly. But the fact that you're saying this uh, shows that you're not mentally screwed up because only an insane person would fly, uh, given the chances you have of dying. And then he says, well, <laughs> so hold on. So you're saying I mustn't fly. Uh, you're saying I must fly because I'm sane enough to know that I shouldn't fly. And they say, yes, that's uh, catch 22. It's in the army code. Uh, that's where the phrase comes from. <laughs> Yeah. If, you, if you're crazy, then they'll make you fly because you can. And if you're not crazy and you say, I shouldn't fly, then, uh, yeah, then there's, say, there's no way out. That's, ev that's evidence that, you, that you're clearly sane enough to fly. So, uh, yeah, the point is that, and the other way of putting it is that um, if you think of certain conventional kinds of warfare, it really is just soldiers lining up to shoot each other across trenches where everyone's armed. But if you look at real uh, you know, how wars really play out. You often are, you know, sitting in a position where you can kill an enemy soldier that's not armed, but is behind enemy lines, not in a position where you can take him in as a prisoner of war. And there's just no, there's no commanding officer or general who's going to say you shouldn't shoot them. Uh, right. it, it's just not a viable practice. So one rule that changes is killing armed, unarmed strangers. That goes from being a definite no-no. I mean, that is as certain a no-no as there can be uh, right. to being something that's not just allowed, but that it, it'll be your duty to do. And it can mm -hmm. be hard for people to do that. I think morally sensitive people uh, struggle right. with that. Yeah, um, psychologically traumatizing. And, and the same thing with freedom of speech. Uh, you know, most people know this line about freedom of speech, which is that uh, if you're in a crowded theater and you shout fire, then everyone is going to storm to get out of the thing. And that could actually result in people stamping each other to death. And so you shouldn't uh, shout fire in a theater. Now that example Unless came out of a, a fire. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Assuming there's no fire, you shouldn't, you shouldn't shout fire. Now that, that sort of example came out of a Supreme Court of the United States judgment, I think in World War I, uh, when right. Woodrow Wilson's administration. Uh, <laughs> yes, under the... The, the evil of the the Wilson administration, worst president of the 20th century. But sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and former president of my alma Yes, indeed. Um, Woodrow, Woodrow, you know, that administration said, look, we can't have people spreading fake news and agitating against the war and, uh, you know, compromising our ability the country, to, yeah. to go to war. 
and and that was the real case. The the fire case, that shouting fire in a theater thing, that's just a sort of meme that proved very sticky. The real idea was that you must be allowed to could allowed to curtail freedom of speech in war uh, because it's a really bad idea not to do that. And if you look, Nicholas and I have been talking about sieges. If you look at the history of warfare in Europe for the last 500 years, a lot of it's about sieges. And if someone spreads mm. fake news in a siege, uh, it really it can, can have devastating consequences. consequences. Mm. And so uh, curtailing free speech is something that we, we've, you know, it's a strong principle. You must allow free speech. Um, but in times of a just war, so, so uh, this, a this, rules applies. This concept of, of the different rule set, does it apply to these tyrannical societies? Yeah, so so that's the that's the background idea, is that they're so far from being uh, well-constituted liberal mm. societies that there is something like uh, a, a low-level war going on. South Africa was much like that, by the way, during apartheid. You know, it had a constitution, mm. it had the vote, but that was restricted on the basis of race. And so the ANC's, you know, Mandela's argument at the Ravonia trial was that that there are four tiers uh, to to his just war theory. And his thought yeah. was things aren't bad enough to justify outright warfare where you can just go kill unarmed police um, or, or members of states. Uh Things aren't so bad that you can even just go out and kill armed forces, but things right. are so bad that you can go out and destroy infrastructure. And right. in that in that sense, he pled guilty to treason because uh, he said, mm. "I don't respect the sovereignty of this country. I think we are in something like a just war scenario." And mm. and 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 this is a this is part of what's so difficult about just war theory is that it not only says you've got something approaching a well-constituted liberal state in which the rules of the game are thus and so, freedom-loving, you know, you've got to use uh, free means to achieve free ends, but that when you mm. skip out of that into a just war situation, that's not just like suddenly anything goes, that there are still gradations, more and less yeah, are allowed. stages within the, within the just war. And so in that sense, you could say that... Um, uh, you know the 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 Kagami uh, provides an example that I was confronted with when I landed in Rwanda in 2006, visiting my sister mm. as a as a teenager. Um, just before I got onto the flight, I was chatting with my sister, and she said that uh, someone on the radio. I was flying there for Genocide Memorial Week, as it turns out. We hadn't planned it that way. Mm. But I'd been chatting with her about this and that logistics. And then she said, oh, just by the way, I was listening on the radio. And some guy said that the cockroaches must be exterminated. That was the night before I flew. By the time I'd landed the next day uh, and, and made it home, we listened on the radio to a report that that person had been found and killed. And there was no <laughs> doubt in anyone's mind uh that he'd been found and killed by i mean it was it was explicit this was by rwandi's secret police and no one had any doubt that mm. uh, paul kagami was was uh on board with that mm. and in a in a in a free society that would be absolutely unacceptable there's no habeas corpus there's no mm. uh, procedure there's no, yeah, there's no trial no law nothing it's just straight up death yeah uh but when you consider the circumstances on the ground, it was very hard to find a Rwandese, Hutu or Tutsi, 
that didn't think that was a good thing because they're so traumatized by the genocide that had oh. happened at that stage only 12 years earlier um, oh. that they considered themselves to be in the aftermath they saw this as an exercise in the aftermath of a just war, an extrajudicial process that sort of justified in the same way that it was justified for Kigami to march in uh, with a with a Tutsi led army to to take out mm. the the Hutu genocide perpetrators. So, I mean, I think that I think that probably is a good example of of something that really makes my skin crawl. But at the same time, I think any moral judgment about that particular action should be made within this broader context and within this broader context i i start seeing reasonable arguments for for tolerating it um right. it's harder that's a harder case in this in the sense that than the Khashoggi case because in the Khashoggi case i just can't see a good argument for why Khashoggi. Uh, right, the dude was writing, you know, uh, look, it's possible that obviously this is always the, the defense made of these times. Oh, Khashoggi was meeting with Islamist radicals and they were going to overthrow the regime. And we had the secret information. We can't tell you about it because it's all, you know, from spies and informants. But, uh, you know, that's uh, just trust us. That's really why we why we wiped them out. Um, here's here's my problem, though, with this line of argument, because I often because I'm. I, I don't have as developed a, a philosophical uh, brain as you perhaps, Gabriel. So I tend to kind of have flagpoles that I, I regard as this is really bad. And mm. if I come up with an argument that says that can justify that thing that I think is completely bad, then that argument can't be right. And I think about the way that people this talk is, about Joseph This, Stalin. by the way, just to give you the mm. philosophical name for this, this is the particularist approach. You have okay. particular judgments and that's yeah. and that's the rock and then you try and extrapolate Which a theory from that. from that yeah okay Rather i didn't than know the name a thank you first yes yeah thank you thank you for 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 letting me know the name um so i'm an inadvertent particularist apparently <laughs> anyway uh so i think of of stalin and the exact arguments that were made to justify his atrocious crimes against the people of the soviet union um They'll say, look, he industrialized the country. Look, he held it together after this vicious civil war. Look, he defeated the Nazis. Look, he he, he modernized Russia. He lifted people um, up into literacy and all these things like that. And then you start to get into a game of, of almost like uh, counting people against each other. So you say, okay, how many people um, given factory jobs is equal to one person being killed? Yeah. Uh, and then your whole moral equation is this like horrible numerical yeah. wishy-washy thing. Yeah, you get to the uh, point where it's how many Jews can you guess to justify one Volkswagen? Right, and that to yeah. me just seems insane. You know, yes. you can't you can't go Correct. down that road. That is so true. so how do we stop from sliding into that particular pitfall if you do judge people in their sort of context of a of a bad society? You know, if you're the leader of an awful place. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, I, I, I think one important thing to do is hold on to to that intuition, and and the and the broader sort of theoretical point that you can extrapolate from it is something like the necessity of a deontic uh, uh, moral that somewhere along the line. You, you can't just think the means justify the ends. Somewhere along right. the line, you've got to include the thought that 
this thing this thing is just is just not acceptable um, yeah, I've, I've always you, thought that the, the sort of deontological versus consequentialist thing is a bit funny because it almost seems like both should be taken into consideration rather than just one that's exactly right and and so and so the way i think of it is that there should be a sort of what philosophers call the reflexive equilibrium so mm. you try and figure out how screwed up or how well constituted is the society and then that'll give you uh uh, a guideline that'll allow you to create a stable framework and say within this society these are the means that are off limits and in no society is it ever acceptable to um to sort of build cars or factory jobs out of the bones of of innocent of human, human beings, beings. Yeah. so 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 that's never on um and and uh and then sort of you scale it up to, you know, in this society, okay, you're not building cars out of this, but you are trying to overthrow a totalitarian regime. You're trying to destroy the Nazis, right. so bombing Danzig can be justified. In this society, uh, it's not as bad as the Nazis, so uh, bombing Joburg, not justified, but bombing some unoccupied building is justified. Right. So, so you you look at the consequences and the context to to try and find a particular set of rules for a particular level of disorder and i think on that basis it just does it just does look like um like you could make pretty hard judgments like there's like there's there is no justification for what happened to Khashoggi. there is no justification for what happened to navalny mm -hmm. there is no justification for what happened to the rwandese man who was assassinated in santon uh there just wasn't nearly enough of a credible threat uh of of mass murder uh, being right. averted by 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 killing these individuals for 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 anything like right. that to be justified, I think that's so that's important. The flip side is, you know, what's interesting about Nicholas is that he is he is he he is in the American context a conservative, and right. conservatives have been making a lot of political hay out of um, MBS because Mohammed Bill Saman, because of course Donald Trump's position was. No, Mohammed bin Salman was 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 not involved with this, and we'll mm. keep doing deals with the Saudis because their leader is innocent, and it was some other problem, and let's look away from it. Uh, whereas Biden's position was, no, 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 MBS did this; he's a really bad guy. But now that he's in charge, it's very hard for him. We to have withdraw. to deal with him, yeah. And the CIA is now coming out with harder evidence that he does seem to be involved. So it's like, ah, oh, you know, Biden's a hypocrite. So so, so the, I saw. The, 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 so, so this 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 allegation of hypocrisy. I mean, you haven't been trying to 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 accuse uh, the Democratic Party of that. But I just want to say, even if your moral judgments are one thing, mm. and again, control is very important because how you actually act out of them is going to depend on what your right. no, what your that, power that exactly, relationship. Is. That was exactly the point I was going to make. Is 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 on one hand there's a moral judgment and then what follows from that is what should we actually do yeah. um, because simply knowing that something is bad doesn't mean that we immediately need to intervene if that's not actually going to make things better and so i think that also should form part of the moral equation here is and and i think i think about egypt here um as a good example right so egypt uh, they had a revolution they threw out their military dictator and there was a kind of really shambolic, not very well-organized election where lots of people didn't vote. And they voted in a president who was from the group known as the Muslim Brotherhood, who are uh, Islamists. And he was, according to the rules, technically democratically elected. 
Uh, but what did he do as soon as he was in power? He began cracking down on the religious minorities. So Egyptian Christians began to get targeted by mobs and things. He began to strip away freedom of speech and freedom of religion from the constitution. Uh, he began to align Egypt militarily with the sort of, uh, you know, expansionist Turkey and all these like very aggressive uh, uh, militaristic powers in the Middle East. Um, he was breaking agreements with Israel. It was, it was heading for something that that looked bad. Uh, and he got overthrown by a sort of half popular, half uprising, half coup that put another military dictator in power. Yeah. So when thinking about this, it's difficult for me to not sympathize with the coup, which is never a position one wants to be in. <laughs> and no. yet... Um, no. Egypt has continued to be an autocratic, fairly badly run place since the new military dictatorship came in. But at least it's not sort of, you know, chopping up Coptic Christians in their churches anymore. Yeah. Um, and so if I was, let's say, the American president and I was deciding whether to stop the coup or not um, from, you know, using CIA to try and block the coup. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. And how weird does that feel? But I think it's... It doesn't feel good. (laughs) But so, but so here I think is a, is a, is a dastardly but important thought. Uh, Hypocrisy is an essential and sometimes positive element of the human condition. What's the, what's the phrase? Uh, Hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue. Yes. Very good, Nick. And and (laughs) so sometimes... Someone clearly yes. said that. <laughs> Sometimes saying, uh, look, morally, I'm really not on board with what this guy's doing, but pragmatically, I'm not going to try and intervene. In fact, I'll even continue collaborating, uh, you know, tacitly or, or explicitly, uh, because I just don't have the power to intervene in such a way that's going to do uh, more good than harm. That's just an unfortunate position that... Uh, that 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 people sometimes find themselves in because because power is ultimately dictated by violence and your ability to do violence in narrow focused ways that really targets uh, bad actors uh, and that avoids collateral damage is is extremely limited just by the fact that those bad actors have violence on their side too and so can put uh, use innocent people effectively as, as as body shields so i think I mean, that's pretty gloomy, but what's the nice side of it? The nice side of it is that uh, when you live in a well-constituted democracy like South Africa, you, you, wow. I look at this <laughs> and I think, you know, what a, what a wonderful position we're in where you don't have to be hypocritical. Like the, mm. the means for removing uh, bad actors from power Right. Is not you don't have to make this moral choice of like is it worth killing someone or not is it worth yeah. uh, uh, you know uh, going around judicial processes repressing free speech right. no no you can just we are in the position we can where you we can, can go use, and vote we can go and protest you can use good means to achieve right. good ends and that was and that didn't come for free that came on the from the blood that other people were willing right. to sacrifice of their own. And and this is this is perhaps I think what reveals one of the worst crimes of tyranny is that tyranny so destroys our ability to sort of maneuver and it so constricts everything and it so poisons everything that there become no options left except bad ones. 
There's yeah. just the choice then is always between less bad and more bad. And that's yeah. destroying to the soul. Yeah. Um, and that's why we should guard liberty closely because it's the only thing that allows you to have a good choice. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And why uh, it's so apparently- frustrating when people who are in a well-constituted liberal society don't exercise that very limited power, the very limited powers that you have to use your voice, to use your vote, right. uh, to, to, to change the background conditions for everyone's choices are, are so easy to, it's, 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 these kinds of uh, real historical cases and thought experiments where it's all so complicated, they should be the, the, the spur to our moral energy to say, you know, thank goodness we, we're not actually sitting in that position, position where you have to be a hypocrite or you have to be a murderous right. person or you have to just sit back and allow someone else to be a murderous person. No, you can, you can use good means to do good ends. I, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to live such a life. And I think, you know, if I can say one last thing about that, when you say there's no good choices, there, there's an interesting passage in Seneca who uh, mm. was one of the great uh, sort of Roman era uh, philosophers and playwrights. And he was talking about slavery. Um, and he had a, anyway, he, he has this beautiful passage where he says, uh, uh, slavery is terrible because it gives you no good choices. Because if you're a mm. slave, the only way to get out of it is to break the rule of laws, to break the property rights system that's holding uh, the economy together. Uh, but if you don't break that and you just go along with it, uh, then you're you're breaking freedom, your your own freedom. Yeah, you're or destroying liberty. Or, yeah, you're dehumanizing so, yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. But he said the 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 only solace that I can offer to the that I can think of that's provided by the world is that your mind is still sitting in your brain between your ears, and you can use it at your own discretion privately mm. and you can enjoy you know basically you can enjoy the sunset um mm. and 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 those natural goods that we get out of beauty out of the beauty of the world out of the beauty of uh free th- internal thought and 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 private uh, relations are he said this is a very poor solace but it is some solace and it's just important to remember you can never take all the good stuff away from anyone right and uh and you know, uh, something is always better than nothing. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's beautiful movies about the Holocaust where, where people are still trying to sort of get married uh, in Auschwitz and stuff like that, which kind of speaks to the same idea. But there's an interesting mm-hmm. moment where Bernard Williams, who's one of the great British uh, philosophers, he describes this as, as, as one of the most uh, morally pugnacious uh, things he's ever come across. I think out of a kind of woke impulse to, to damn anything that makes slavery not seem that bad. And, and, and I wouldn't want, and that's the wrong idea. It's not saying it's not that bad. And when we say like these moral dilemmas yeah. are impossible and there's no good choice, but there's still some humanity there. It's not to say that it's not that bad. It's to say, look at how bad it is. It's so bad yeah. that the only thing you have left that's good is, this, is, yeah. is breakfast and a sunset. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not Very a way good. to live. Very good. No, I think that's a that's a good note to end on. Uh, I just want to say that apparently the the quote hypocrisy is a tribute that vice pays to virtue is a quote from Francis Duke de la Rochefoucauld. Uh, Rochefoucauld, yes. Yeah, in in his uh, book Reflections or Sentences and Moral Maxims. Uh, 
so I'm not familiar with this character, but I have heard the quote before. He's um, very witty, and <laughs> very cynical. Jesus, <laughs> he sounds like a sounds like a good proper French writer. <laughs> he he's one of those guys who's got a line along the lines of like you know, someone came over to my house because they wanted to do me a favor, and I immediately ran away. <laughs> So, um, with that in mind, uh, what are we closing off today? What are our recommendations? Do you have anything on your mind? Uh, oh, Nick, please go first. <laughs> this always happens. Okay. It's always, uh... I will. I will go with a bit of a lazy recommendation because I'm sure many of our listeners have probably come across this before. Um, but it is, of course, the BBC program QI, uh, which is a lot of fun. Um, they examine lots of weird little facts uh, and, and theories about the world, and they try to make you think. They try to bust myths about commonly held ideas. Was hosted by Stephen Fry. Now it's hosted by, what's her name? Sandy Tostvig, I think is her name. Um, anyway, you can find lots of clips of its best stuff on YouTube uh, for free, so you don't have to even trawl through BBC episodes or anything like that. Just go mm -hmm. look up QI. Um, tons of fun stuff to watch there if you haven't watched it already and if you have watched it watch it again because it's good stuff mm. very good I like that uh, my recommendation would be off the back of this episode uh, the novel by James Kutzia Elizabeth Costello uh, which I think was the second that he wrote um, after he won the Nobel Prize and mm. it's about this fictional professor who uh, convinces herself of a moral argument that uh, killing animals is uh, is like murdering humans, and that uh, battery farming them is is sort of a sin worse than the Holocaust. And uh, he actually started this out uh, by delivering a Tanner lecture at Princeton University, um, mm -hmm. sort of in this persona, uh, which which got a lot of people very angry. And then he sort of uses this, writes this in the sort of angry rabbi saying, "How can you compare this to the Holocaust and so on?" Um, and but one of the one of the um, sort of stark points in the book is that Costello comes to this position where she feels so alienated by her moral compass. It's so far apart from everyone else's that that she feels she can't live a good life because she's right. too far outside of her times because she's not living in the context of the moral universe that she occupies. She's sort of become an angel in another realm. In a and, world of devils, yeah. Yeah, and that just, and that ends up, she, she, she finds a beautiful argument for that being immoral too, for it being immoral to be uh, too much <laughs> of a moral saint. It's very perverse. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, but it's a it's a great read. It really it's really scintillating stuff. Cool. All right. I think that's all we've got for today. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we will see you soon. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, 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 grr.